There was a carcass in the trap. It was pretty good news for a student that was working his way through college by selling pelts. I accompanied my trapper friend one winter afternoon as he checked his traps along the snow-covered banks of a frozen lake in the middle of winter. It's a rather unusual means of employment for a collegian, but it worked for him, and it was an enjoyable afternoon for me. There in front of us was a muskrat, pinched to death by the iron jaws of a sportsman's trap. Those were my glory days as a trapper. Maybe I should say that was my glory day as a trapper. It's gotten very ugly since then, and some of you are with me on this. We are reduced to snaring the occasional mouse that finds its way into our home. And that's about as far as it goes for most of us suburbanites, I suppose. Many of us have played the part of the mighty hunter in our home, haven't we? Baiting that little trap and hoping that our little furry nemesis will bite down to his everlasting destruction and to the increase of our peace. But most of us do not have a whole lot of experience with traps. But when used figuratively, the concept certainly helps us to understand a dark aspect of human experience in a fallen world. It is not good to be informed that your boss is setting a trap for you, is it? It's not good. Let's say that you're called to the witness stand in a trial by jury, and you are told by your attorney that there is a powerful and crooked lawyer who will approach you on the stand, and he is determined to trap you in your testimony. It's not a happy place to be, is it? When people set traps for people, evil shrieks with glee. When people secretly devise deceitful, underhanded means to discredit or destroy another human being, the specter of depravity casts its dark shadow and the demons get busy. When people are operating in deceit, when they are seeking to scheme and to trap, there is evil afoot. And as Jesus teaches at the temple courts just three days before his crucifixion, we find the most powerful leaders of Israel doing just this. They are setting a trap for Jesus. If they could, they would arrest him, and they'd probably stone him immediately. But the Roman authorities will not permit the Jews to carry out such an execution. And complicating their murderous intentions is this maddening fact that Jesus is wildly popular, the people are crowded around him, and they love what he is teaching and saying. And so the religious leaders can, cannot get at Jesus the normal ways, and so they begin to scheme and to plot. Chapter 19 of Luke, chapter 19 and verse 47, we read there, every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it because all the people hung on his words. Jesus then gives the parable of the evil tenants, and it's very clear that he is speaking this parable primarily against the leaders of Israel. 
And he is saying that they have rejected the ways of God and it makes them even more angry and more intent on getting Jesus. And then we read in chapter 20 and verse 19 in that context, 20 and verse 19, the teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew he had spoken this parable against them, but they were afraid of the people. So you see their situation, their dilemma, if we would use that word. They want Jesus dead, but Rome does not give them that power, and the people do not permit access to Jesus. And so the way now, the approach now, will be to use underhanded means to trap him in his words. The scheming begins, and the specter of depravity casts its icy pall over the scene. Matthew and Mark add a very interesting note here that Luke apparently feels no need to burden his Gentile readers with, but I think for our knowledge, having all of these Gospels, it's helpful to bring in here that some of the people that have gathered together here to scheme and to catch Jesus in his words are bitter enemies with one another. The Herodians who favored the Roman powers and participated with Rome's rule, got together with the Pharisees who despised the Roman rule. They set aside their differences for the afternoon, and they are so angry at Christ, so challenged by His teaching and what He is doing, that they work together to bring Jesus down. If we could just go to that scene, I wonder what took place there as they met bitter enemies behind closed doors plotting their trap for Jesus. We'll catch him in his words. The people won't let us put our hands on him. Rome does not give us that authority. We will catch him in his words. Let's find, let's find a way to get him to say something that will hang him. And so the plot begins at verse 20 of Luke chapter 20. Keeping a close watch on him, they sent spies who pretended to be honest. They acted as if they were righteous men, sincere seekers of the truth, but in reality they are hunting Jesus down. They're stalking him. Their true heart's desire is revealed in the next section or the second half of verse 20 they hope to catch Jesus in something he said so they might hand him over to the power and authority of the governor so the brain trust of Israel has huddled and decided the way to take Jesus down is to get him to say something that will permit them to turn him over to the Roman authorities it's a chilling thought the powers of darkness are beginning to coalesce People who are normally at odds with one another are beginning to join hands and a force that these Jewish leaders despise they want to use to their own purposes and bent. With this, with, with, with this wicked scheme set in motion, they approach Jesus dripping with false sincerity and baiting the trap with flattery. Verse 21 so the spies questioned him. Teacher, we know that you speak the, and teach what is right, that you do not show partiality, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Now what they say is obviously absolutely true. 
The problem is they don't believe a word of what they have said. They calibrate their words to disarm Jesus. They are baiting him with flattery. One author has said this uh, helpfully. Gossip is saying behind someone's back what you would never say to their face. And flattery is saying to someone's face what you would never say behind their back. And by the way, if we're ever in either one of those realms, we should hold our tongue. Gossip. Saying behind someone's back what you would never say to their face. But this is flattery. They are saying to Jesus what they would never say behind His back. You, they say, speak and teach what is right. They don't believe it. You do not show partiality. Perhaps to some degree they believe that, but it's just meant as a way of flattery. He should understand that prostitutes and tax collectors are to be hated. And you teach the way of God in accordance with truth. He did, but they believed none of it. It was a trap. They were baiting it. And now the trap is set with a question. Verse 22, is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Dripping with sincerity, spilling out flattery, they insert the knife right between two ribs. Is it right? Is it lawful is the idea of the word. Is it legal according to Mosaic law? Does Mosaic law, does the will of God revealed to Israel make it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar? Understanding the political context, first of all, Israel is, of course, ruled by Rome, a pagan empire. The vast majority of Israelites hated Roman rule and were zealous to see Israel liberated and ruled by a Davidic king. One of the most hated reminders of Roman dominance was the annual poll tax, a tax owed by every Jewish man ages 14 to 65 and owed annually by every Jewish woman ages 12 to 65. They hated this tax. It was a way, in a sense, of Rome throwing it in their face. We rule. Every year, this poll tax. No one likes taxes, do they? As Ben Franklin said, there's only two things you can count on in life, taxes and death, and we all hate them both about equally. Nobody likes taxes. Nobody ever has liked taxes. But we need to understand this isn't America. This is first century Palestine, and in this day, Paying taxes to Rome was a volatile issue. People died over this issue. Revolts took place because Rome was taxing Israelites. And Israel at this moment is teetering on the edge of revolt. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar? Here's the dilemma. In the, in the scheme they come up with, if Jesus says yes, the crowd Crowds who are passionately hopeful that he is the Messiah and willing to support his claim at this moment will reject Jesus. We are not going to have a king who says that we should pay taxes to Rome. 
of anything that Messiah is supposed to be in our mind's eye, that's not it. And so if he says, yes, straight out, you must pay taxes to Rome, the people will turn from him. Now remember, the crowd is Christ's protection. And so if he loses the crowd on a point like this, they may in fact beat him or kill him on the spot. But even if he lives through that, the crowd will no longer be his protective shield. And they will be able to get their hands on him. And the Pharisees and Herodians, it's the Pharisees here who are standing there with bated breath saying, I hope he says yes. Because do we ever have a speech for the crowds then? We'll turn them against him immediately. What Messiah would say that Rome should be paid the tax, the dreaded poll tax? But if he says no, the Herodians step to the front of the crowd. The Herodians, who were supportive of Roman rule, would, support, would report Jesus to the authorities. Say, do you realize with this rabbi from Galilee, he's not connected, doesn't really know anybody, he's got no authority here in the temple, but do you realize what this rabbi is teaching in the temple precincts, stirring up Passover pilgrims? He said that we shouldn't pay taxes to Caesar. Jesus is stuck. They have this figured out. It's a perfect trap, and they want to squash him in it. He will soon be theirs, they believe. Jesus responds to this trap in verse 23. He saw through their duplicity. Their duplicity, or the Greek word craftiness. They were saying one thing, but intending something else. He sees through the flattery. He sees what they're doing immediately with their question. He is in trouble. Seeing through their duplicity. By the way, there's a principle, I think, that it certainly emerges here. as just a side comment, but never take any compliment too seriously. Never take any criticism too personally. He sees through their flattery. He's not disarmed by it, but he begins to realize what they're up to in this moment. He sees through their duplicity and says to them, verse 24, show me a denarius. The other gospel writers add that one is, in fact, produced. A denarius was a very small coin from our standards. It was a silver piece that was almost precisely the size of a dime. And this particular denarius, at this time in history, was stamped with the image of Tiberius Caesar, under which it said, Tiberius Caesar, or on the coin it said, Tiberius Caesar, Augustus, son of divine Augustus. And on the back was the impression of Tiberius's mother, Livia, presented as the incarnation of the goddess of peace with the inscription, High Priest. Bring me a coin, says Jesus, and it is quickly presented. Verse 24, whose portrait and inscription are on it, he says. Caesar's, they replied. It's only one answer. Caesar's, they replied. So what hangs in the air is, let's get this straight here. Let's demonstrate this. The coinage that you use every day, 
that you were quite able to produce upon request, that currency bears the image and the inscription of Caesar. Jesus then responds. He said to them, Then give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Some have called this the most important, significant political statement that has ever been issued. I suppose that could be argued along a number of lines and debated by scholars, but there is some reason for people saying this. To a large degree, Western culture owes much to this statement of Jesus, and we will not be able to fully unpack it in our time here today by any means. But let's consider that phrase, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Jesus could have answered a lot of different ways on this. But he recognizes that when an emperor stamped his image on a coin, everyone understood that the coin was his property. So Jesus says, look at this coin. It bears the image of Tiberius Caesar. It is his coin. In the providence of God, God has enabled him to mint this coin. Give it back to him if he wants it back. It's his. Roman sovereignty was a fact of life, writes Daryl Box, a fact of life that they carried around in their pockets every day. So if it is no big deal to use this coinage in daily business, why is it a big deal to pay taxes with it? Isn't that really what taxes are in some respect? I realize the price tag is awfully high, but isn't it true that taxes really are paying for things? We're paying for the roads that we use to traverse the world, and in this setting, the Roman army in particular was responsible for building those roads. And they're paying for military protection. And there were other provisions that the state gave to the citizens of that time. It's Caesar's coin. It has his image on it. And you benefit from some of what he does. So give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. Now, I know there's a lot of ways around this text. And there are people that are trying to get around it right now. Christians who claim to be better Christians than some because they don't pay taxes to our Caesar, to our federal government. I know a wealthy Christian right now living in another state who's concluded that it's unethical for him to pay taxes. Sadly, this man's about to lose his property. And that's not the greatest sadness, of course, but there's other ways of also to get around it. Some are saying that it is unconstitutional to pay taxes to the federal government. The government has never been given such a right in the Constitution, and citizens don't need to pay taxes because of that. It's unconstitutional. There's others, such as the man that I've referenced, who believes for conscience reasons government uses tax dollars in wrong ways, don't pay your taxes. You're contributing to depravity when you do. You know what? Both of those ideas might have an element of truth to them. I really don't know, and I don't waste a whole lot of time worrying about it. You can draw conclusions and argue all kinds of things for reasons that we shouldn't pay taxes, and people use those schemes. 
But let me guarantee you that Tiberius Caesar did not use all tax revenues for noble purposes. And yet Jesus said, give to Caesar his tax. And if Tiberius Caesar did not live for noble purposes at all times, you can guarantee that the emperor Nero did not. Yet during the reign of Nero, the apostles Peter and Paul each insisted that God's people should, and I quote, honor the king. I could not, for conscience sake, talk to you about the depravity of Nero here in this company. You could take perhaps any television show that shows up in our culture on any given day at any time, take the worst one you can find, and it will look like a Sunday school picnic next to the way that Nero lived his life and how he used tax dollars. He was a sensual pervert of the worst magnitude. He was a murderer of the worst magnitude. This is the man who lighted people's bodies as torches for his gardens, and in that light committed heinous acts of immorality against God. And the Apostle Paul says, honor the king. Let's listen to the words of Peter. If you'll turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 through 17. 1 Peter chapter 2. We'll park on this passage for just a moment. 1 Peter 2, verse 11. Remember, we're talking the days of Tiberius Caesar. We're talking the days of Nero and many like them that are to come. Peter says in this context, chapter 2 and verse 11, if we can just get a sense of this in that context, this is a man talking about it from a different standpoint, a different citizenship. He says, dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day He visits us. What good deeds, Peter? How are the pagans going to glorify the Christians, glorify God, in fact, and look at the Christian's life? Verse 13 one example, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. Live as free men, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. We're free in this world in Christ. He's the king. In one sense, the laws of our land do not apply to us. Ultimately, we're citizens of another land. That's our freedom. But don't use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as servants of God. Here it is again. Show honor to everyone. Show proper respect, or the Greek word honor, to everyone. Love the brotherhood of believers. Fear God. There it is honor the king. 
honor the king. We can argue whether or not our taxes are too high. We can voice our opinions at the polls, but pay your taxes, says Christ. Pay your taxes, said the apostles of Christ. Who are we to do anything different than what they say? One pastor tells the story um, of a man who wrote a letter to the IRS. I paraphrase. To whom it may concern, my conscience has been bothering me for some time. Please find enclosed a check for $75 for taxes owed. If my conscience continues to bother me, I'll send the rest. <laughs> That's good humor. <laughs> I don't think that probably happened. That's good humor. But you know, seriously, for the Christian, our conscience should be, I pay my taxes. I pay all of them. Use every legitimate means to minimize your tax liability. I think that's only appropriate stewardship for citizens of another kingdom, that we might use our funds most wisely for the cause of Jesus Christ. Minimize your tax burden. Don't pay taxes simply to pay taxes. But... Pay your taxes. Why? Because as Peter says, the most important thing in this life is not money. The most important thing for the Christian in this world is to live for the glory of the name of Jesus Christ. And that costs us sometimes. In fact, I haven't really found a day in my life where that didn't cost me. Every day of my life. To live for the glory of Jesus Christ costs something in this world. The ultimate bottom line is not the dollar. The ultimate bottom line is the name of Jesus Christ. What matters more is the salvation of a lost world. And so it means that we submit to what God has said and we pay our taxes so as never to be an offense. So as never to denigrate the name of Jesus Christ in our world. The broader principle here, of course, is that God has ordained a specific sphere of influence for human government, and Christians are to submit to the exercise of that authority. Let's turn back to that passage that Pastor Pratt read earlier, Romans chapter 13, and consider this again. We'll just highlight the first section there. But Romans chapter 13. Romans 13 and verse 1. Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and he will commend you. For he is God's servant to do you good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant, an agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Now, this is broad stroke terms, obviously. But this is the way that God conceives human government. 
God could think very differently. In fact, we'd be very convinced if he did give different instruction. You need to understand that the world is run largely by unbelievers who are operating for their own selfish purposes and are destroying the purposes of the kingdom of God. Don't pay your taxes. Don't be cooperative citizens. Do everything you can to undermine the government because it's always in opposition to my rule. A point could be made for that. But it's not the counsel that God gives. He says, even under the most depraved of pagan leaders, honor the king. Respect the fact that the ruling authorities are in place by the design of God. Realize that as you are obedient to the authorities, you are not obeying them because of their moral capacities, of their moral righteousness. You are obeying them out of reverence for God. You're doing what He's asked you to do for the glory of His name. This says so much, and again, we can only scratch the surface, but God is at peace with at this point leaving the nations of the world in the hands largely of unbelievers. And praise God for those Christians who get involved in that whole process and strive to be salt and light in a fallen world. But frankly, we have always been and ever will remain a remnant and aliens and strangers in this world. We will never be able to fully hobnob with the lost. It won't work. We can compromise and turn a lot of corners and it still won't work. What the world wants, what Satan wants, what this system wants is absolute conformity to the wickedness of Satan's designs. No Christian's ever going to fit that agenda. I praise God for those who seek to make a difference, but it's a tough scene. But God says, be at peace with it. Submit to the authorities. Now, there's many things that aren't said here. Calling his followers to submit to the ruling authorities does not address the issue of when those ruling authorities do cause us to fear. Remember what Paul said, there's no reason to fear the ruling authorities if you're submissive to them. Well, that's not, obviously not covering every situation. Paul himself will soon be in prison and will soon lose his head. But Jesus calls his followers to submit to the ruling authorities and to be busy about gathering citizens for the heavenly kingdom. That's the instruction that he gives us. Now, with that instruction, back to Luke chapter 20 and verse 25. He says, Then give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. This is not to say that human government is free from all responsibility to God. Government is a world unto itself, and God's world is over here on the side and it has nothing to do with government. Rather, it's an umbrella-type approach, and over human government is the authority of God. So he expands it. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's in the providential design of God, but render to God what is God's. And he just leaves it at that. Love to hear some explanation, some commentary, some fill-in. What is God's? Well, just pick up your Bible and you'll learn the answer for the rest of your life. 
what is God's. We know in this summary statement there is so much. This is a reminder that the ultimate responsibility of the believer is to the Lord. Jesus does not here address what a believer is to do when the government commands the Christian to disobey God. But elsewhere in the Bible, we find clearly that God is always to be obeyed. If the authorities command us to violate God's will, we respectfully, sincerely, meekly disobey the law. Daniel chapter 3, Daniel chapter 6, just as examples of that. We don't do what we're told to do by our authorities in human government when God tells us to do something else. And that day could easily come right here. There's an awful lot of stirring that shows that this spirit is alive and well in our Western world of freedom of speech. But that freedom of speech, may find, we may find that it is seriously curtailed in the days ahead. Well, when that day comes, and by the way, let me just say, I'm certainly not in support of those who use Christian truth and use their tongues to do everything they can to be as obnoxious as possible. That's not how we speak the truth of God, but believe me, it is certainly possible that reading Romans 1 in a church building could someday become a hate crime. That is very possible. And when that day comes, the series on Romans is scheduled. It may be many years from now, but it's on the docket. It's going to be preached. We need to read it. We need to preach it. We need to teach it. And we need to go to prison, if that's what it means. I don't think the way to do that is to announce to everybody what we're going to do and begin to act all weird and different and use strange speech and make a big media circus out of it and find the language that's most offensive possible. Of course not. Our job is to reach a lost world. And we want to do so honestly, but our job is never as a church to listen to what the authorities tell us to say when what they say is against the will of God. Who knows what the future holds, but we must always obey God. And we have brothers and sisters on the other side of this globe in particular for whom this is daily life. To obey God means to die. May we pray for them. And if that day comes here, may we have the same faith and the same courage to give to God what is God's. But as long as the government does not demand that we personally violate God's will, we have an obligation to honor it. What is God's? Let's consider that for a moment. We could develop this very fully through all of the text of Scripture, but it reminds us, does it not, Almost every commentator that I've ever read on this passage of Scripture has brought this up. And I think that it's very true that the Jews would have seen this as well. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 27, Let us make man in our image and in our likeness. The Creator says as He deliberates with Himself over the creation of mankind. We have been stamped with the image of God. We belong to Him. 
That coin that is there in the presence of Jesus, whether he holds it or not, that, that coin that is right there in his presence is stamped with the image of Caesar. And in a sense, he says to us, remember, Christian, you have been stamped with the image of God. You have been made in his image. As this coin belongs to Caesar, you belong to the Lord. Give to the Lord what is his. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6, do, not, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. We are stamped with the image of God. We are His. Pay taxes to Caesar? Yes. But give ultimate loyalty to Caesar? No. We are to live as exemplary citizens of the human government under which God has placed us, but our ultimate citizenship is in heaven. God is our King. And as King Jesus rules from heaven's throne, He draws to Himself His people who have a shared citizenship throughout this globe and throughout eternity. We belong to Him. So there's an appropriate function of human government, but there is the larger realm of accountability to God, and that really sets everything in its place. I don't believe we have really begun to understand the deep wisdom of this passage. But it was, it, I think, is clear to us as we consider what Jesus has said that it is profound. He escapes this trap, he springs it, and he sets everything straight. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Let's move up and broader. Give to God what is God's. There's no conflict between those two at this point of paying taxes. It's got his image on it. Pay it. But let's remember the big picture here, religious leaders. Give to God what is God's. So the trap is baited and set. But Jesus springs it, and all of those who hear him know it. Verse 26, they were unable to trap him in what he had said there in public. And astonished by his answer, they became silent. They detect here tremendous wisdom. A second attack will be mounted beginning at verse 27. A very different attack. They will go after Jesus here in the area of resurrection. By God's grace, we'll look more at that next week and consider that attack. But at this point, Jesus has silenced his attackers. Like his father, the son has shut the mouth of lions. He will do it again. He will, in fact, remain invincible as long as his father does not forsake him. He has won this battle. And so Jesus demonstrates to us his supreme wisdom. And yes, I think that is the foundational reason of Christ's victory here. He has great wisdom. 
But what we can grab onto, don't dismiss this as this is divine wisdom in operation, something we could never think of. I think we all feel uh, less than ideal on our feet sometimes when under attack. When somebody's trying to pin us down with words, it's kind of hard sometimes to think straight. If you're like me, you always think of the good answer about 10 minutes after they're gone, right? We can be awed by Jesus, just like that. He sees the flattery. He knows where they're headed, and he gives an answer that hangs everybody out to dry. There's a sense in which we're not Christ, and we can't emulate that. But the one thing that we can definitely grab onto here is the victory for Jesus in this setting comes because of his worldview. And as we imbibe that worldview, as we embrace that worldview of the greatness and the majesty and the supremacy of God in all things, we begin to think in the way that Jesus thinks so that we can answer such questions. Jesus here has a very robust, filled-out view of the providence of God. This is not to excuse the sin of our world by any means. Jesus knows Tiberius Caesar is a depraved man. Paul and Peter know that Nero is a depraved man. But there is a sense of the providence of God that leads Jesus to say it is appropriate and right for us to cooperate in this world with the authorities that God has ordained and placed over us. There is no revolutionary focus here in Jesus' response. He is not saying that we should impose upon our culture the kingdom of Christ by any means. His witness is something else. It is we can trust the providence of God and we can cooperate as citizens within a fallen world while always giving ultimate loyalty to the Lord. So, because of this great view of God's sovereign authority and rule, Jesus recognizes that the question put to him is really missing the big picture. What is at the heart of these leaders' question? At the heart of it is the love of money. The reason you don't want to pay taxes is because you love money. And they have been exposed earlier in the book of Luke as just that, people who are in love with money. And so all of Israel is in this great upheaval, wanting to set Rome aside and wanting to be free from these taxes of these pagan Romans. But the reason for it is really self at the heart, not God. By having this large worldview of the supremacy of God in every nuance of life, Jesus sees through their duplicity and he says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. This was an accountability, giving to God what was God's, that they were miserably failing to honor in their failure to know who Jesus was. Because what they wanted was not the will of God, was not the supremacy of God and the glory of God in this temple. What they wanted was to rule themselves. 
They wanted to rule the temple. They wanted to rule Jerusalem. And Jesus was messing with their agenda. And so when he says, render to God the things that are God's, it is a direct rebuke to their materialistic heart. The accountability to government was an accountability Jesus understood and one he would honor to the death. But the accountability that Jesus understood to the supreme king of kings, he also understood and would, would honor to the death. There may be need for personal counsel along these lines for a believer who is dealing with taxes. I realize we've not said everything that could be said, not addressed every problem that could be faced. But in a general way, let's understand that we are to give to our government what is owed. And, that, and what is owed should not be determined through this long process of trying to understand what the framers of the Constitution said are trying to go through all kinds of writings and readings about people who are talking about this or that matter of conscience, we should determine that question by reading what God says in the New Testament. That's our answer. Compare our government with Rome and then read what Paul and Peter and Jesus said. Perhaps you do not know Christ as your personal Savior. And for all of us, those who do, let me say as we close, we must render to Him what is His. We've been stamped with His image. For the believer, our bodies are His temple. We have been bought with the blood of Christ. We are to live for Him, not for ourselves. And so we can go from here and apply. This applies not only to taxes. This applies to every other realm of our life. God is to reign supreme. Does He reign supreme in our worldview? Does He rule in your heart today? Let's bow for prayer before our King. Our Father God, we come before you with thanks of heart for your goodness to us in Jesus and teaching us to think the way that he thought. We don't. We fall far short. And I'm sure that not one of us is saying in our hearts right now that I render to God everything that is God's every time. We grasp at life and we strive at points to set ourselves up as authority and, and little God's and to reign from the way that we think things ought to be done. Help us, God, to be transformed by a worldview that realizes your sovereignty, your glory in all things. I pray, God, that we would know where it is that we should submit in a fallen world and where it is that we should resist May there be no thought from my words that this is always an easy answer. But I pray, God, that we would be thoughtful, that we would seek out truly your will, and that as we make decisions about where we should yield, 
that we would always do so seeking your glory and your honor above all. We are yours. We belong to you. You have purchased us. And I pray, God, that you will help us as a church to give ourselves wholly to you, our Lord, our King, our sovereign creator. Thank you for stamping us with your image. Thank you for the knowledge of your word that we are not animals, that there is a difference. God, I thank you then with the conscience that we have and with the perception of your presence that we can live for your glory, actively and willingly bending our minds to live in a manner that is pleasing to you. Father, give us strength to do so. And there may be some who are battling right now with sin. There may be some here who have not yielded to Christ as Savior. I pray that you will do a unique work in their heart and draw them to yourself as we close our time together here in, in singing. Through Jesus I pray. Amen.